Welcome to the Master of None podcast, adventures in a hands-on life. Build. Grow. Cook. Train. Explore. I actually had a totally different project planned for today. However, we're going to have to put that on hold because we have a more urgent project that we need to take care of. I'm not going to quite call it an emergency project. Don't worry, nobody's injured or hurt or in some sort of life-threatening situation. But this one's a little more urgent, so we're going to go ahead and jump on that and do that project. Uh, Before we do that, though, I just uh, finished up chopping up our Christmas trees. We had taken the Christmas trees down. Uh, taking all the ornaments and lights and stuff off of them, getting all of our Christmas stuff put away until next Christmas season. And we had hauled the Christmas trees uh, out in front of the house, and so I chopped them up with a saw, tossed all the pieces in the back of my truck, and drove down the hill to one of my brush piles uh, that we're working on. And the reason that we have these brush piles is actually for some habitat improvement uh, to kind of create a little more habitat for a lot of the small uh, small rodents, maybe some rabbits, uh, maybe even uh, bobcats and foxes will be able to utilize those brush piles for, uh, for some additional cover. So anyway, uh, it kind of takes some of the sting out of having to throw your Christmas tree out when you get to repurpose it for habitat improvement. So anyway, I just finished that up. Also, we had... Uh, three pumpkins that we had just been using uh, decoratively so they weren't really good anymore. I probably wouldn't make pumpkin pie or anything like that out of them at this point. But they had been sitting around since um, mid-October or whenever it was that we had gotten those. And so I also added those to the brush pile. Um, We'll see if they uh, maybe provide some food for some of the little critters out there. Who knows? Back to our more urgent project. I walked into the mechanical room the other day, which is where we have all of our fish tanks. And I noticed one of the tanks, uh, specifically the 10-gallon quarantine tank, more on that in a little bit, uh, was only about maybe two-thirds, maybe half full of water, um, which is obviously a problem because it should be completely full of water. My first thought was, have I been forgetting to top that one off for that long where that much water, like we're talking about probably four gallons of water has evaporated out of it. And then I thought, no, of course not. I know that I just topped that tank off with maybe a quart of water, just like yesterday. My next thought was, well, if the water's not in the tank, it had to go somewhere, which is not a good thing. Luckily, this was In the mechanical room in the basement, there's a floor drain. It's a concrete floor. Isn't really going to damage anything. Um, Unlike if you had a tank that started leaking and you had it in your living room or your dining room, maybe carpet or wood floor and all that, and you could really have a huge mess. So luckily, we avoided that. Uh, But yes, there was water all over the floor, uh, starting to run down toward the, the floor drain slowly. And then my next thought was, well the water shouldn't just like leave the tank. It didn't go over the side of the tank. It's going through the tank. So we obviously have a leaky tank. Now this is a brand new 10 gallon tank, so it should not leak 
However, should not does not change the fact that it did leak. So I have some options. I can either return this tank and get a brand new one, which I guess is just as likely to leak as the first one. Also, though, if I return the tank, I know that they're just going to throw it away, which seems wasteful. Um, and this is something that I know that I can repair. So I'm just going to go ahead and repair it, even though, like I said, I shouldn't have to. It's brand new, whatever. It'll be good practice also, because like we talked about, we're getting ready to redo all of the seals on the big 125 gallon tank, which is a lot more linear feet of seals and seams and way more weight that we have to deal with on that one moving it around so i think this is just going to be some really good practice to go ahead and clean up and reseal this little 10 gallon aquarium okay let me just run you through real quick the steps that i'm going to go through before we actually run back down to the basement and get this tank fixed uh, the first thing i'm going to do is completely empty it out so remove the the filter, remove all of the water that's still in it. Um, the only other things that we had in it was some short chunks of PVC pipe uh, just to provide some structure for anything that we put in there so that, you know, a big glass box, you put a fish or something in there, they're kind of going to be uncomfortable with that. So some little pieces of, I think I used like two inch PVC pipe cut into maybe four inch lengths and just stacked in there, it gives them some hiding places. Uh, so that was really the only other thing in there. Also, the crawfish Douglas, who's been, uh, he just seems to be causing problems or just in the wrong place at the wrong time, maybe. He was living in there because uh, we're getting ready to start using him on a very small uh, kind of kitchen countertop size herb garden aquaponic system. And we're going to do a whole episode when we build that little system the reason we're using the crawfish is because he eats a lot and he's not real big and doesn't take up a lot of space. So we don't need a huge container to keep him in. And like I said, he eats a lot, which means he also produces a lot of waste or he can eat a lot. He can also go a long time without eating much and be just fine. But you can feed him pretty heavily, which produces a lot of waste, which in turn produces all of the fertilizer for the plants that we're going to grow in the aquaponics system. Uh, for anybody who's not familiar with aquaponics, it's basically a combination of the terms aquaculture, raising fish or other aquatic uh, life, and hydroponics, which is a, uh, a way, a method of growing plants where um, you basically pump water with nutrients in the water to the roots of the plants and cycle through that way instead of growing them outdoors or in pots of dirt or something like that. So the aquaponics really just kind of brings those two systems together. It eliminates the need for the artificial fertilizers that you would use in a hydroponic system. And the plants provide all of the filtration, eliminating the need for mechanical filtration uh, because the plants are pulling everything out of the water uh, from the waste from your fish or whatever else you're growing. Uh, so, like I said, we're going to use Douglas the crawfish to kind of power that little tiny kitchen countertop size aquaponic system that we're getting ready to build. In the meantime, we had him in this little 10-gallon quarantine tank, and so he's now in a 5-gallon bucket until we can get his, uh, his temporary quarantine tank fixed and back up and running and eventually move him to that very small micro aquaponics system that we're going to build. Okay, so where were we? 
we were talking about the steps that we're going to go through. So like I said, first we get it completely emptied and then we clean it as best we can. Uh, there wasn't much in there, so there wasn't a whole lot to clean. It's also only a 10 gallon tank. So you're not talking about a huge surface area to clean. We just wanted to get it as clean as we could. Uh, so we went ahead and did that. And then the next thing to do is actually to inspect the glass itself, because if you have a leaky tank, there are two places that those leaks could be coming from. It could either be leaking at one of the seals at one of the seams, uh, between the panes of glass, or you could actually have a cracked piece of glass and the water could be leaking through that crack. In the first case, that's fairly easy to repair. We're just going to remove all of the silicone sealing compound from all of those joints, remove it and replace it. Uh, brand new seals, good to go. Uh, the tank will be better than new because obviously it wasn't that great to start with. Um, oh, cracks in the glass. Now, theoretically, you could fix this if you had a tank that you really wanted to keep using you're not actually going to fix the crack in the glass what you would have to do i suppose is patch it basically with another piece of glass and silicone seals most of the time if a tank is cracked it's not worth fixing um, now the other thing you could do theoretically is remove the cracked pane entirely buy a piece of glass to replace it and redo all of your seals again with that brand new piece of glass replacing the old piece of glass. Um, that's probably a better idea because if you've ever had like a, a cracked windshield or a little crack in a window in your house, you probably notice over time, inevitably, it gets longer and longer and longer. So this, the same thing is going to happen if we have a crack in a piece of glass in an aquarium, even if we try to kind of patch over it. That crack is just going to keep growing and... I can't imagine that that's going to end well. So, um, yeah, forget that I even mentioned that as an option. Now that I think about it, I probably would not even do that. If we're going to keep a tank that has a cracked piece of glass, we're actually going to remove that entire glass pane and replace it with a brand new one. Okay, so we've inspected the tank. We made sure that it does not have any cracks in the glass, which tells me that the leaking is happening at one of the seams. I'm not even going to bother trying to figure out where exactly that leak is coming from. We're just going to remove all of the old sealing material and replace all of it with brand new sealing material. Now, this experience almost makes me think that if I buy one of those lower end tanks, again, even a brand new one, maybe I should just go ahead and just as kind of a general practice, go ahead and replace all of the silicone seals even on a brand new tank. I don't know. Uh, we do always check them for leaks. We fill them up, let them set for a couple days, make sure there's no leakage. We did that with this tank also, but obviously it still sprung a leak. So it must have been like right on the verge of starting to leak. Okay, so the next step is actually to remove all of the old silicone. Now there should be silicone actually in contact between the corners of the glass. The, the actual glass to glass surfaces should have some silicone. We don't need to remove that. What we want to remove is the silicone that's like in the corner uh, where the two pieces come together. So what we're going to do is basically just scrape that off. And with a good sharp razor blade, it pretty much comes right off. Uh, now we'll talk about the reason for this in a minute, but there's an extremely strong bond between 
silicone and glass. In fact, if you use silicone two pieces of glass together, you let that silicone cure, and then you try to rip them apart by by pushing one of the pieces of glass over, the glass is actually going to break before that silicone bond breaks. So ordinarily, this is an extremely strong, long-lasting bond. That's why it's used on aquariums, because that's exactly what you want, is a good, watertight, strong, long-lasting seal. So we're going to remove all of that silicone from all of those corners on the interior of the tank, just with a razor blade. We're then going to clean it, uh, clean that glass surface really well with a little bit of acetone. Now, safety side note here, anytime you're working with acetone or with the uh, liquid silicone sealant that we're going to use, make sure that you're working in a well-ventilated space, any respiratory respiratory protection that you may want to use, make sure you're using that. Uh, eye protection, uh, especially working around glass, eye protection is always a good idea. And um, I think I mentioned the ventilation. What else? Uh, gloves. Wear some gloves. You don't want acetone or uh, liquid silicone on your hands for that matter at all. So yeah, wear some gloves. Not wearing gloves does not mean you're tough. Just uh, Wear safety gloves when you're working with chemicals and paints and stuff. Okay, after we get the glass totally clean with that acetone, we're going to actually use some masking tape to tape down some lines so that the new the new sealant that we put in there will have a nice clean line on the edge. Now, technically, this is not going to affect how well it seals. Uh, it's just going to make it look a lot nicer. So if we're going to do it, do it right. So we're going to tape down all of the corners and you can see uh, some pictures of how I'm going to do this uh, on the show notes for the episode. I'll put some pictures up. We're just going to tape those where we want the edges of those seals to, to fall. The next thing we're going to do is I'm probably going to go ahead in case I got some fingerprints or anything like that on the glass. I'm going to go ahead and wipe it down real quick with another, another little acetone wipe uh, right before we do the sealing We're then going to use some uh, silicone sealant, some aquarium safe silicone sealant, because not all silicone sealants are created equally. Some of them have other additives in them, all sorts of stuff. So we're using silicone sealant that's specifically designed for aquariums. I'm going to take that and lay down a bead quickly because this stuff starts to cure fairly quickly. Quickly lay down a bead in all of the corners. So the bottom of the tank has four sides. We're going to go around those four sides and then the four vertical corners of the tank also. We're then going to take a uh, little silicone caulking tool kind of thing. Uh, You could use your finger. I think you just get a nicer finish if you use an actual uh, profiled tool and just go over all of those beads of silicone caulk really quick uh, and it just gives you a a nice contour on those seals. That's all there is to it. After that, we we pull the tape off real quick and we let this thing set. I'm going to say probably 48 hours before we even think about using it. Uh, Technically, 24 is probably enough. So if you want to be a little extra safe, no reason to rush it now. We'll let it cure for a full 48 hours. We should talk real quick about some words and definitions just so we're all on the same page and so we're not confused. Okay. Frequently, you hear the word silicon, kind of pronounced like that, silicon. And people pronounce two words basically the same way that are actually two different things. 
And I'm going to kind of exaggerate the pronunciation of these other two words so that you know what I'm talking about. First is silicon. And silicon is an element that you will see on the periodic table, uh, abbreviated SI. Uh, silicon is a semiconductor metal. And that's why you hear about like Silicon Valley. It's it's not because they're using like silicone spatulas in the kitchen. It's because they're using this silicon semiconductor in the manufacture of microchips and stuff. Uh, so that's that's silicon. That's uh, that's the the element on the periodic table. Silicone. Actually, let's uh, let's talk about another one first. Silica or silicon dioxide, that, so that's SiO2, it has one silicon molecule and two oxygen molecules, is something completely different. Also, let's back up. You'll hear about silicon being uh, carcinogenic if you're exposed to it, um, or toxic or something like some other metals like lead. We all know that lead is toxic. Okay, so is silicon, apparently. Now, Silicon dioxide is actually one of the most common, if not the most common, uh, compounds on Earth. It's what sand is made of. It's what granite is made of. It's what uh, quartz is made of. It's what a whole bunch of other rocks are essentially made of is silicon dioxide, SiO2. Now, just because you have a, um, what do I call it, a hazardous, dangerous, toxic, whatever, uh, chemical in a chemical compound does not mean that that compound is dangerous. For example, sodium chloride, sodium on its own, uh, basically explodes in water. Uh, so that would be very hazardous. You wouldn't want to eat a little piece of, uh, of sodium. Chlorine on its own is a toxic gas at room temperature However, you combine them chemically into sodium chloride and you have table salt, uh, something that's absolutely essential to life. So this, this is just a great example of how sometimes advertising or uh, news outlets will, will kind of just like twist the truth a little bit. They, you might see a headline that said something like, and I, I don't know if this is actually an example, it's just an example that popped into my mind of how they do this. You might see something like a headline that would say um, restaurants sneaking toxic gas into customers' food. Well, sort of, because chlorine is a toxic gas and it's one of the two elements that makes up the compound sodium chloride, salt. And of course they're using salt in your food, but it's like, gets your attention and it's all sensational. Anyway, um, silicon possibly hazardous silica, silicon dioxide. It's, it's just sand. Uh, that's also what glass is made of, um, which I'm really glad that I mentioned that because it's going to kind of lead into our discussion of why we use silicone to seal glass. So the major component in most glass is silicon dioxide. Okay, so what is silicone when you see like the rubber spatula that says 100% silicone, and this is silicone spelled S-I-L-I-C-O-N-E with that E on the end, unlike silicon the element. So silicone is actually a polymer 
which is comprised of long chains of alternating silicon and oxygen atoms. So it goes silicon, oxygen, silicon, oxygen to make these very long chains. And these can also, these silicones can also have uh, carbon, hydrogen, sometimes other elements bonded in there to create these polymer atoms. So that's really all that silicone means. And you might see one thing advertised as being or labeled as being 100% pure silicone and another thing that's also 100% silicone and they're not the same thing. That's because silicone can refer to absolutely any polymer that consists of these chains of alternating silicon oxygen atoms. Um, now, speaking of different things that could be labeled as silicone, these could be fluids that are actually used as uh, synthetic lubricants. It could be a resin type material. It could be an elastomer or rubber. Uh, it could be like the silicone um, sealant, which is uh, starts in a very viscous liquid form uh, when it's in the tube. And then when it's exposed to oxygen, it cures into a rubber form. And that's what we're actually going to be using to seal this tank. Uh, it comes in a little tube and put it in your little caulk gun and squirt it in there. Super easy. Um, so why do, why do we use this on glass? Well, like we mentioned, silicone bonds extremely strongly to glass. Uh, and the reason for that is basically because glass is, is primarily made of this silicon dioxide, the SiO2. Now, the uh, the silicone, like we talked about, has these long chains that are alternating silicon and oxygen. And those are polar bonds in both cases. So they're able to actually kind of chemically align with each other so that you have oxygen bonded to silicon in the glass, oxygen bonded to silicon in these long polymer chains, and they kind of line up. So the oxygen bonds to the silicon in the um, between the two and vice versa. So that's why it actually creates such a strong bond. Practically speaking, though, just knowing that it creates a very strong, very durable, very long-lasting watertight bond is all we really need to know. So let's go ahead and run downstairs to where I have the, uh, the tank. I've already cleaned it, um, so we're getting ready to do all of our scraping, uh, taping, um, final cleaning with the acetone, and then put these new beads of silicone sealant on there. So let's go do that. All right, so we got that tank totally cleaned up, resealed. We let it sit to fully cure for uh, actually over 48 hours just to be on the safe side. Filled it back up to leak check it. Seems to be holding fine. In fact, it seems better than new. The All of the seams look way better. I think they're just a little sloppy when they're uh, building some of those tanks. Now you can get really nice tanks. You can pay, you know, 10 times as much for your tank and get a really nice tank with thicker glass, uh, with different types of glass that, uh, that maybe let the light pass through a little, even a little more easily, uh, with really, really fine, neat, uh, seals and all of that, uh, even like rimless tanks where you don't even have a rim on the tank to, to cover up any of the seals. They do such a clean job. Anyway, you can pay a lot of money for those tanks or you can get just a, a basic tank, uh, for, for relatively little money. Um, 
in fact, a lot of a lot of places frequently have them on sale for like a dollar a gallon. So, you know, up to a certain size, like a ten gallon tank, you can get for ten dollars. So, uh, so these things are not expensive. So a lot of times, the uh, the craftsmanship on the tank is leaving a little bit to be desired. So like I said, it looks way better now than it did even new. It's holding water. So we drained that water and because that was just a test to make sure kind of as a leak check and uh, got it up and running again. Filters running. Douglas is back in there. Those little pieces of PVC that we talked about are back in there. So as soon as we get Douglas out of there into his new aquaponics system, uh, which Hopefully that'll happen in the next uh, couple months anyway. That tank is going to become our primary quarantine tank. Now, what does that mean? Well, we're going to use it for a couple things. First of all, anytime we get new fish, we can put them in that quarantine tank before we add them to an existing established tank. Now, if you don't have any fish in a tank yet, that's fine. Just put the fish right in there. If you use a quarantine tank, if... If any of those fish have any parasites or diseases or anything like that, hopefully that's going to give you a chance to observe those diseases or parasites and do something about it before you add those fish to an existing established tank, possibly infecting all of your other fish. So that's part of the purpose of the quarantine tank. Also, if we have a fish in a tank and it gets sick, we can move it to that quarantine tank. Why do we want to do that? couple reasons. Uh, first reason we is we don't want it if whatever it has is contagious, whether that's uh, some sort of disease or infection or parasite or whatever. If that happens to be contagious, we don't want it spreading to the other fish in the tank. So we can remove that fish, isolate him while we treat him. The other thing that we can do with that uh, quarantine tank at that point or hospital tank is if we're going to use some sort of medication on the fish, medications pretty much always have a downside because, um, yeah, otherwise we would just use them all the time. So there's pretty much always a downside, but they can also be life-saving. So we don't want to necessarily expose all of our fish to a medication, especially, well, there's really no way to to medicate a single fish if he's in a tank with a bunch of other fish because the the two ways that that's normally done is either treating the water in the tank with a medication so the fish and everything else in the tank just absorbs it or um feeding treated food medicated food and obviously that food once it's in the tank you can't really control who's eating it and who's not so remove that fish get him in the hospital tank and then we can treat him alone without having to expose any other fish or other organisms to whatever medication we're going to use on that fish. So that's kind of the point of having a quarantine tank. And um, when you think about it, let's say, you know, it, it cost me about $15, uh, 15 to $20 to set up a quarantine tank. Uh, just a little 10-gallon tank with a basic filter, some of that PVC chopped up. That's really all there was to it. So for less than $20, you can set up a quarantine tank. Now, when you're talking about some of the higher-end fish in the aquarium hobby, somebody might be spending $10, $20, or more on an individual fish. So my question would just be, is it worth the $20 investment to have a quarantine tank in order to potentially save the life of one of your $30, $40, $50 fish? Or 
let's say that you have a whole school of maybe you have 10 $20 fish. Well, now you have $200 worth of fish and having that quarantine tank is just kind of an insurance policy. Not that it's totally bulletproof, but it stands a good chance of saving the lives of your more expensive fish. So it totally makes sense to have it. Now, why do we call it a quarantine tank? Well, quarantine is uh, basically just the process often for uh, medical or disease control purposes of isolating an infected or possibly infected individual or group from a group that's not infected yet. Now, where do we get that word? Well, it com- it actually comes from uh, Italian. I apologize for my terrible Italian pronunciation. Quaranta, uh, which means 40 in Italian. And um, where does that come from? Well, in Venice in particular, they used to have a law where any ship arriving in Venice from a country uh, where there was known to be plague would actually have to anchor outside the harbor or maybe in the harbor offshore. I don't know where they made them anchor precisely, um, but would have to anchor offshore for a period of 40 days. And the idea being that in that 40 days, if there was anyone on the ship infected with plague, that they would start to show symptoms within that time period. If the 40 days pass and nobody has shown any symptoms of plague, then they're confident that no one on that ship is carrying plague. They let them into the harbor. They let them on shore and so on. So from the Quaranta, we get quarantine, which we now apply to that general practice, even if it's not done for a full 40 days. So there you go. Okay, our next glasswork topic that we're going to talk about today is drilling glass, which sounds a little scary. I'll be honest. Um, yeah, if you've never drilled glass before or even tile or something like that, ceramic, porcelain, whatever, it can be a little scary. Now, why are we drilling glass? Well, we have this 125-gallon tank that we purchased used that we are doing a complete refurbishment on and setting it up as a sea anemone propagation and clownfish tank. Big project. The next step in that project, though because we've done kind of a general cleaning on the tank just because it was filthy to start with. Like it was pretty nasty. So we had a lot of cleaning work to do to get it to the point where I felt like we could even work with the glass and kind of take a good look at it. Now we did a pretty close inspection. None of the five main glass panels are cracked. Uh, the The bracing, which is actually its own glass panel at the top of the tank, the, the glass brace in the middle, was broken. So I went ahead and removed that, just cut the silicone seals that held that together, removed it completely. We're going to order a custom piece of glass to replace that and install it. Uh, We're also going to remove all of the silicone seals from that tank as well. I feel a lot more confident doing that now that we've done this uh, one little tank. Uh, Just some good practice uh, because you kind of have to keep things moving once you start working with that uh, that silicone. So anyway, we're going to redo all of the seals. We're going to kind of refinish and paint all of the rim pieces on the tank. Uh, Just make them a nice kind of modern black instead of the the faux wood. But before we do that, um, I wanted to drill a couple holes in the tank. Now, why are we drilling holes in the tank? 
we're setting this up with a sump, which is basically a second tank beneath this one. And that sump is gonna be where all of our filtration and heating and water monitoring and all of that stuff takes place. All of our mechanical stuff is gonna be down in the sump so that our display tank can stay nice and clean. Um, by clean, I'm not talking about like cleanliness, just a clean look without a bunch of like tubes and wires and pipes and hardware and all of that. All the hardware goes down beneath. Now we have to, we have to have a way to get the water from the display tank down to the sump and then again, back to the display tank from the sump. So there are a few ways to do that. Uh, one of those ways is with something called an overflow, which is what we are going to do, which basically just means that as we pump water from the sump back into the tank, it would raise the, the water level in the display tank. However, with an overflow installed, as that water level increases in the display tank, it just spills over into the overflow and goes down a pipe back into the sump. So that's how we actually cycle everything between the tank to the sump, back to the tank, back to the sump, and so on. Uh, so that's kind of how that works. Now, if we didn't drill a hole in the side or the bottom of the tank for that matter, that's another way to do it. We're going to do it in the side. But if we didn't drill a hole and we wanted to have some sort of overflow, it would have to go over the edge of the tank, uh, which is obviously not going to work because then it would be spilling over the entire tank and it would just be a huge mess. Um, the other way to do that is with a type of overflow that uses a siphon. So you basically have a pipe going down into the display tank and you get it going initially, you get it filled up with water so there's no air in it and then you can use that to suck water from the tank down into, uh, into the sump with a siphon action because the sump is lower so it once you get that siphon started, the, uh, the gravity once the water's over the edge of the tank, the gravity pulls down on that water, pulling water from the tank up and over the edge down into the sump. Seems like that would work just as well and we wouldn't have to drill the tank. However, that method is a little more accident prone. Uh, here are two things that can happen. Let's say that the pump that's down in the sump actually stops uh, for whatever reason. Uh, maybe the power goes out, maybe the pump itself dies, maybe someone runs by and unplugs it. <laughs> Who knows, the pump could stop for any reason. Maybe a, a snail gets sucked into the rotor of the pump and stops it up. Or Nemo gets sucked into the pump and stops it up. It didn't make it that time. Anyway, the pump can stop. Or maybe our fish are trying to escape and they jam a rock in there so that the everything will stop and the tank will get dirty and we'll have to clean it and they'll, they'll have a chance to escape. That could happen too. You never know. The problem is, if that pump stops... Think about this. We're no longer returning water back to the display tank and we still have that siphon going. That siphon is going to suck water from the display tank down into the sump until the siphon is broken. That means that it's sucking in air. It breaks that siphon and stops. So when is it going to start sucking in air? Well, it's going to start sucking in air when the water level in the tank has dropped enough that the intake for that siphon is exposed to the air which is going to be several inches down into the water so we could depending on where we mount it we could be talking about anywhere from 30 to 50 gallons of water that has gotten sucked out of the tank down into the sump the sump is not big enough to handle that amount of overflow uh, from the tank without overflowing so we're going to have a huge mess 
if we let that happen. Uh, the other thing that can happen, uh, because we all know that there are air bubbles in water. I mean, you pour a glass of water out of your kitchen sink tap and there's some air bubbles in it. Or you look real close into an aquarium, you see some little air bubbles. Well, guess what? When you have a siphon going over the edge of a tank and you're constantly pulling water in, it's possible for those air bubbles to start to accumulate in the, the top, kind of the top curve of that siphon, the siphon tube. You get enough air in there, um, or there are other ways for this to happen too. If you get a little crack in it or something, you get enough air in there and it'll break the siphon just, just like we talked about. So you might think, well, why is that a problem? We're not sucking water out of the tank. Our, our sump's not going to overflow, but guess what? This time that pump that's down in the sump is still running and we're no longer pulling water out of the display tank. What happens now? The pump will pump the sump dry. Uh, Now that could be, depending on how we set it up, anywhere from another 20, 30, 40 gallons of water going into the tank. The display tank is also not large enough to handle that amount of overflow, and the water ends up in the same place it did in the other case, which is on the floor. I really don't want 20 or 30 or 40 gallons of salt water, not to mention the possible damage to your hardware by letting it run dry and overflow. I don't want that water running all over the place in the basement, even in the basement, I should say, uh, let alone if this was a display tank in a finished area of your home. So just as a much more bulletproof way to transport the water between the display tank and the sump, uh, we're using this overflow. And this overflow is actually going to have three separate uh, pipes going down to the sump. So it has a primary overflow, and then it actually has two emergency backup. So if the primary does get plugged up for whatever reason, it has two other pipes that it can flow through. So this system should never cause us a problem. Uh, It's just like, like I said, totally bulletproof. Uh, Anything that goes wrong tends back towards stability. Everything just kind of stops. Or like I said, it goes down that one of those other overflow tubes. Uh, like let's say that our pump stopped, it just stops filling up the display tank, stops overflowing, no big deal. We replace the pump, no mess to clean up. So that's why we are drilling a hole through the side of the tank instead of using a siphon to go over the edge of the tank. Now, drilling glass. So in order to drill a hole in the side of the tank, inevitably we have to drill glass. The way you do this is you have a specialized a drill bit or actually a hole saw uh, that is uh, usually a diamond coated hole saw because glass is extremely hard. So you need something harder than the glass in order to cut through it. And you're going to put this little hole saw in your drill. Uh, We're going to build a little dam uh, around where we're going to drill. Probably out of clay. I haven't quite decided yet. Uh, We're going to fill that up with water because you also have to keep this wet uh, in order to not overheat either the glass or the hole saw while you're drilling. Uh, So you have to cool those in order for them to cut effectively. Uh, So we just do that by adding some water. Thermal mass of the water is going to be plenty to absorb all of the heat that's generated from the friction of cutting the glass. So uh, that's how that works. And then we actually drill it. Um, And you want to go really, really slow. Just use not even the entire weight of the drill. Uh, You totally want to just let the hole saw 
cut on its own. Don't put any pressure on it. Like I said, not even the whole weight of the drill pushing down. And then when we get really close to the the backside of the glass where it's about to cut through, we want to slow down even more and just as slowly as you can. Now, this thing's spinning fast. I'm just talking about how fast we're actually cutting through the glass. That happens extremely slowly. Uh, Also, just so that that piece of glass, once we cut it, doesn't fall, hit the other side of the tank and break the tank because that would be really disappointing. Um, We're going to do a couple things. I'm going to put a piece of tape on the inside of the tank uh, right where we're cutting uh, to hopefully catch that piece of glass. And then I'm going to take a couple of uh, big soft bath towels and just lay them right underneath that. Then when the water goes through, they'll catch most of that water. And if the piece of glass falls, it'll fall on those towels where it'll have some padding instead of falling directly on the opposite pane of glass and possibly cracking that pane of glass. Now, I should mention, before you even think about ever drilling a piece of glass, you need to know one thing, and that is, is this piece of glass that I'm getting ready to drill tempered or not tempered? Uh, Now, usually non-tempered glass sometimes is referred to as annealed glass instead of tempered. What does that mean? Um... I'm going to tell you two things that it means. I'm going to tell you technically what it means and practically what it means. Uh, Technically what it means is that tempered glass has gone through a tempering process. So the way they do that is basically the glass, the glass is manufactured. You have this pane of glass that's going to be used for whatever. And uh, they heat it way up. It gets really hot. And then using blasts of air, they cool it down very, very rapidly. That's uh, that's what the tempering process is. So glass that's had that process done to it is called tempered glass. Now, usually a pane of tempered glass, once it goes through that process, is going to be etched or marked in some way as being, excuse me, as being tempered glass. So one way to tell if a piece of glass is tempered is just to look for that mark. If it's marked as tempered, chances are it's tempered. I guess it's possible that it's not and somebody was just like, trying to cheat and sell more expensive glass because tempered glass is more expensive. So, um, but yeah, if it's marked as tempered, I'm not even going to attempt to drill it. Now, why, why is that important? Um, why can we not drill tempered glass? If you attempt to drill tempered glass, it will explode into a million pieces, literally a million, like tiny, tiny squares of glass. And, uh, this is often done for safety purposes because the, the tempered glass, first of all, is stronger than non-tempered glass. But when it breaks, it really breaks, uh, which can also be a good thing um, because instead of breaking into large, heavy, sharp shards that could like fall and cut somebody open or something like that, it just explodes into a million tiny pieces. So... That's exactly what's going to happen if you try to drill a piece of tempered glasses. It's going to literally explode into a million pieces. And we really don't want that to happen to our tank. Now, I've seen some literature out there that that says, oh, tempered glass, like in the windshield of a car. Okay, car windshields are not tempered glass. Uh, how do I know this? Because when you get a crack in the windshield of your car, the entire windshield does not explode into millions of pieces. That crack, I, I know all of us have had this happen at some point. You get that, that piece of gravel flies up when you're driving down the highway at 75 miles an hour, hits your windshield, and bink, you get that little that little spider kind of 
crack started and then it it grows and gets larger and larger eventually you just have to get the windshield replaced if you used tempered glass on a windshield of a car and that happened if the impact of that tiny piece of gravel or whatever it is is enough to start that crack the entire windshield is going to explode so there's a reason that they don't use tempered glass on windshields now the rear window of almost all vehicles is almost always tempered glass now it's not getting hit by those pieces of gravel it's also not right in front of you as you're driving down the road so um so if that one explodes whatever no big deal that's why like in movies sometimes you see you see somebody taking a shot with a with a gun at a at a moving car the car is speeding away and this is something that they actually frequently do get right in movies a single shot through the back window of a car will cause the entire window to explode as opposed to a single shot through the windshield. If a car is coming toward the shooter, we'll generally just make a hole in the windshield and it won't explode like the, uh, like the back window of a car does. Now the, uh, the side windows of a car, some are, I think are usually tempered, uh, but not always, uh, but the windshield is never tempered. So, so there you go. There's that. Now, how do we tell if our aquarium glass is tempered, because sometimes aquariums are made of tempered glass, sometimes they're not. If our aquarium is made of tempered glass, there is no way that we can drill that back panel and we're going to be out of luck on trying to install this uh, this overflow. So first way, like I said, look for a mark on the glass. I did not find any etched marks on the on any of the panels of this aquarium. That would make me start to think, okay, good, maybe it's not tempered and we can do this uh, this drilling process. The Well, I guess one way is just to try to drill it, and if it explodes, then we knew it was tempered. I don't want to do that. I don't want to ruin this tank. If it turns out that it's tempered, I'd rather know before I drill and we can come up with an alternative plan, uh, for what maybe even for what we're going to use it for. Because... Maybe if we're not able to do an overflow and we'd be forced to uh, use that siphon in order to have a sump running under the tank, maybe I don't want to do that uh, just because of the risk of eventually losing that siphon, something goes wrong, the water goes everywhere. Maybe we want to do just a freshwater tank of some sort, not use the sump. So our plans will change one way or another. Our plans will change if we do find out that this tank is tempered glass and we can't drill it. So the next way to tell if an aquarium is tempered glass is to look for some sort of sticker or label on the aquarium that would say tempered glass, do not drill or something like that. Now, when I got the tank, it was so dirty that I could not read any of the stickers or anything that were on the tank. However, now we've cleaned it up and guess what? There is a sticker on the bottom of the tank that says tempered glass, do not drill. So that's kind of disappointing, but... My next thought is, does this, excuse me, does this sticker mean that the entire tank is tempered glass or just that that bottom pane of glass is tempered? Now, if I had like a make and model on this tank and I could call the manufacturer and find out, I would probably do that. I would give them a call and just say, hey, here's the tank I have. Here's the, the make and model, whatever. I need to know if the entire tank is tempered or if it's just that bottom panel that that sticker is referring to when it says tempered glass do not drill because normally they don't put any stickers on the sides of the tank because then you'd be able to see them and it wouldn't make for a nice clean look 
but they do frequently on the on that bottom pane put some sort of label or sticker or something on that bottom pane because it's typically covered. So I don't have a maker model and I have no idea who the manufacturer was on this tank. So at this point, the safest thing to do might be just to assume that the entire tank is tempered glass, not drill it, blah, 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 boring. I really want to drill this tank because I really want to set this up with a sump. So lucky for me, there is one other way to tell if glass is tempered and um, some glass you can actually is easier to do than others. So let me tell you how this works. Tempered glass, when it goes through that tempering process, it changes the properties of the glass in kind of a semi-invisible way until you put on polarized glasses. Uh, now we could go into into depth on what polarized light is and all sorts of stuff that that's used for and like liquid crystal displays and all of that. We're not going to, we're going to keep it simple. Here's how it works. I have some polarized sunglasses. I can throw them on. And if I walk outside and I look at my truck or my tractor, the windshields look totally normal and clear, but the, um, the side windows and the back window of the truck and tractor have the, these weird like dark and light patterns in them, very, very uniform geometric patterns that show up when I'm wearing polarized glasses. Now, some polarized glass, or I'm sorry, some tempered glass, because I know those are tempered panes of glass, some tempered glass will do that. Other tempered glass will not. Now, you want to be absolutely certain of what you're working with before you fire up that drill. So the way to be really sure of this is to look through the pane of glass at polarized light wearing polarized glasses and then see if you can see those those dark and light patterns in the glass. So where do we get polarized light? Laptop screen. Or I think you could, yeah, you could even use your, uh, your smartphone screen probably because yeah, that's, that's polarized. Anyway, uh, laptop's much bigger, so it's going to be easier to see those patterns. So what I did is I took my laptop, put it inside the tank. So I actually had the tank laying on its side and I set my laptop in there with a white screen on the laptop and I looked through the bottom pane of glass and sure enough, I could see all of these dark and light lines in the glass. And I guess what causes that is where it's actually resting on uh, support bars or support rollers um, and the, the type of support system that they have when they actually do the tempering process, when they blast that cold air onto the glass to cool it extremely quickly, um, where those bars are in contact with the glass is what creates those, those variations and changes the properties of the glass and how it reacts to polarized light. So anyway, put my laptop in there and clearly I could see that the bottom pane of the of the tank was indeed tempered glass. Okay, big drum roll. Turn the laptop so I'm looking through the side panel or actually what's going to be the back panel of the tank and big relief, not tempered glass. It looks just like looking through that pane looks just like you're looking through it without the glasses on, without the polarized light behind it. So that tells me that that sticker that said tempered glass do not drill is only actually referring to the bottom pane of glass in the tank, not the back pane. Now I am 99.9% sure of that. I'll be honest, there's still a little bit of apprehension in the back of my head, 
So I'm going to be really relieved when I drill this tank and it does not explode. Because um, I'll be sad because, yeah, we'll pretty much have to scrap the project at that point because we won't have a, a tank to work with anymore. So um, hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, I'm thinking some of that apprehension is just the idea of drilling glass because uh, I've done it a few times, but it's still, oof, yeah, it's glass. So it can be a little scary. So we're going to do that. And also I should mention, I want to do that before I put a bunch more work into the tank, uh, before I redo all of the seams, before I redo all the painting, all of that. I want to go ahead and get that hole drilled because that's probably like the the most likely point for a giant catastrophic failure that's going to put a kibosh on the entire project is drilling those holes in the back of the tank. So, like I said, I want to do that first. And then, when that's done, then we will go ahead and proceed with the rest of the project. So, I'm going to stop putting it off. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to push pause on this recording. And I'm going to go drill the tank. Wish me luck. In a few seconds, I will be back and you will find out if the tank exploded or if we're proceeding with the project. Okay, here we are. We're getting ready to drill two holes in our 125 gallon glass tank. Uh, this glass is about half an inch thick, so it's going to take a while to drill through it because we want to go nice and slow. I have the template clamped in place and we have some water here so that we can keep it wet as we go. Uh, the hole saw ready to go. I have some towels, just some uh, big fluffy bath towels underneath where we're drilling, uh, hopefully to catch some of the water so we don't make as much of a mess. But also if that piece of glass falls out, once we drill through, we don't want it falling across the tank and breaking the other side. Um, also, I have a couple pieces of tape uh, underneath, right underneath where we're drilling, hopefully to kind of hold that in place so it may not even fall. Um, but we'll see. So this is the scary part and we'll know in a few minutes if, uh, if this project is going to proceed or if I've massively messed up this tank. So here we go. So good news. We have success. We have our two holes drilled in the back of the tank, and not only that, but I dry fit the uh, the overflow box so I know that it actually fits. We got those holes in the right place, so that's really, really great news. Also, uh, nice clean holes, nothing split, nothing cracked, nothing chipped. Uh, that whole panel of glass did not explode like it would have if it had been tempered glass and we attempted to drill it, so yay. Now we know 100% for sure that that's not tempered glass. Um, great. Next, uh, we are going to remove all of the rest of the silicone seals on each of the seams in that tank and really get the glass perfectly clean using some acetone before we reseal the whole thing. So that's kind of the next step in this big project. There are a bunch more steps down the road, but we'll talk about those later and a lot of those aren't going to be real exciting like just painting the back of the tank uh, so i'll just kind of keep you up to date on where i'm at with that and when we have another project for that 125 gallon reef tank that we're working on that i think is episode worthy we'll do that enough about my projects 
I want to hear about some of your projects and see some of your projects. There are a couple ways that we can do that. First of all, you can send me an email, contact at masterofnonepodcast.com, or you can access the same email address through the contact me uh, page on the website, masterofnonepodcast.com. And just show me some of your projects. Send me an email, send me some pictures, tell me a story about it. And also let me know if it's okay if I uh, read some of that on an upcoming episode of the podcast, because I think that'd be a lot of fun to kind of showcase somebody's project. Uh, Another way that you can share your projects with me and with the rest of the Master of None podcast community is to join the Master of None podcast Facebook group, and you can post all of your uh, projects on there. Or if you need some advice or inspiration, you can also get that there and see some of what I'm working on, some of what other people are working on. Like I said, though, I really want to see what you guys are working on. Also, Instagram is currently where I'm posting most of my project pictures. If you want to stay up to date on any of that, you can follow me at isaac.r.gordon. That's I-S-A-A-C dot R dot G-O-R-D-O-N. Still working on trying to figure out if I really want to pursue the Twitter and Pinterest and some of those others. But for now, like I said, Instagram is primarily where I'm posting any pictures of projects that I'm working on right now. One last thing. I know a lot of the recent episodes have been kind of like indoor handyman oriented stuff. And I hope you're enjoying that. hope maybe you're learning something. And I really hope maybe I've boosted your confidence a little bit with your ability to do some of this stuff whether that's uh, some of the electrical work that we talked about or uh, some of this glass work that we just did today or even when we were talking about uh, residential heating systems. Anyway, um, I want to move away from that for a little while. We'll come back to it. We'll have plenty more of those handyman kind of projects. But let's get back outside uh, next, I think next week. Uh, Anyway, we have some really fun stuff coming up that's more like... um, outdoor bushcraft survival uh practical life skills stuff coming up so like i said i'm excited about it but i don't want to uh spoil any of it too soon so you have all of that to look forward to and until next time have a great day bye Theme music for the Master of None podcast is Club Seamus by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org. If you need some of your own original music, go check out Kevin's other work at his website, Incompetech.com. <laughs>